Welcome to the Underground Christian Podcast, the sensible Christian resource for sensible Christians, and unsensible ones too. Last episode, we talked about liars and how they lie to achieve an objective, and usually the bigger the lie, the bigger the objective. When you combine big lies with the activities of the world, there are bound to be big objectives that the world is trying to attain. The term world is used in the biblical context here, meaning the organized, social, political, commercial, and military system that's designed to advance the agenda of Satan. If you don't believe in Satan, well, maybe you will by the end of this episode. But if not, you'll at least have a better understanding of what it is that Christians are supposed to come out of since we are commanded to come out of the world. Satan is warring with God through the agency of human beings, and in this war, his agenda has four main objectives. Number one is to establish a worldwide governmental system headed by a single man who is controlled by Satan. Uh, Don't mean single in the sense of unmarried, I mean just one man. Number two is that Satan wants to be worshipped by human beings, either directly by his satanic devotees or indirectly by devotees of his worldwide leader. Number three is to kill as many Christians and Jews as practicable, um, and all of them if possible. And finally, number four is to corrupt the physical and spiritual elements of humanity so much that the corrupted people will be rejected by God. Then he can kill the rest. In episodes eight and nine, we went over where in the Bible these agenda items come from, so if you're interested, please go back and listen to those. The active members of this world system diligently work to put these agenda items into operation, although most people who are part of the world have no idea that that's what they're doing because they have no idea they're in the system. They just do their thing, look out for themselves, take care of their families, and believe whatever it is they want to believe, most of the time leaving God out of their beliefs, which is essentially the problem. The executive membership of Team Satan, however, they know exactly what they're doing and who they work for because they had to interview for the position. Each and every one of them took it willingly and eagerly. And why would they do that, you ask? Because when they do, they are richly rewarded by Satan for their service. It's not for nothing that Jesus warned us about the danger of cutting this kind of deal when he said in Mark 8, 36-37, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, Satan certainly knows the answer to those questions. Man will give his soul for magnificent wealth, fame, or power. And if that's not quite good enough, then the cherry on the cake will be the illicit sex. Satan's top people crave these things, but they especially like to feed their illicit, perverse, and debased sexual proclivities, so they gladly exchange their souls to satisfy them. While it's true that most people on the planet are not on board with the satanic agenda and would be openly hostile to it if they thought it was actually being promoted, The vast majority of people are much too preoccupied and distracted to notice the promotions all around them. Part of the reason is that the leaders of the world system employ seasoned, accomplished liars and sellouts to promote and advance the operation by disguising it as things that are fun and entertaining, and even desirable for health and safety. We've noted previously that one way we can start to recognize and identify these men and women of the world is to realize that they all absorb and reflect the skills of their leader, Satan, foremost of which is the skill of lying. Jesus said, after all, that he was a liar from the beginning and tagged him with the title of father of lies. While we focused on this aspect of lying last time, Satan also has other skills as well, notably cheating, stealing, and killing. 
So Satan and his army of demons prowl about the earth looking for people whose minds can be tempted to sin against God and thereby be molded to accomplish his goals and objectives. Sinful enticements have the nasty tendency to modify human desires, and modified desires affect the direction of the heart. Once evil desires and values take root in the heart, evil actions are inevitable. With every practiced evil action, small at first but growing with boldness over time, the evil becomes easier and more natural. And evil loves company, so evil people seek out others who love and practice the same kinds of evil that they love, and together they heartily celebrate each other's activities. In other words, once they become comfortable with their particular flavor of sinful and evil acts, they promote and defend those same acts in others. So, recognizing that they do this is a great way to identify the world's greater network of operatives. When we realize a person, often a famous person, is practicing and promoting a detestable sin that defies God and wars against his laws or his people, then all we need to do is see who hangs out with that person and who participates and celebrates that particular sin to see who is an active participant in the world. In episode 13, we saw an example of this when we identified satanic elements in a Travis Scott rap concert, elements that were used to promote the virtues of Satanism in a fun and entertaining atmosphere. Satan is the spirit of the air, so he mocks and imitates the Holy Spirit by using sound waves, radio waves, light shows, and music to train and captivate human imaginations in order to modify their minds and hearts. Satan understands that most human beings can't go from worshiping God to worshiping him without some intervening steps, so the rhythmic beating of rap and rock music is used to attract and hypnotize listeners to help them absorb the ideas presented in demonic lyrics and condition their minds to accept the reality of Satan. So because Travis Scott and his merry bandmates openly and publicly celebrate and worship Satan, they must be part of the system. And by extension, so are his business managers and handlers. In Ephesians 5.11, the great apostle said, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Well, I can't think of anything that better qualifies as spiritual darkness than the open worship of Satan. In 2 Corinthians 6.14 and 17, Paul further said, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. So not only are we to have nothing to do with that kind of darkness in an active participatory sense, we are also to physically distance ourselves from it so that we're not associated with it even indirectly. I'm sorry if you like rap music in general and Travis Scott in particular. You are to have nothing to do with him or any other artist of the same genre. Throw out the CDs and cancel the iTunes because this is the calling of Christians. But don't worry, you Travis Scott aficionados. I'm not picking on you, not by a long shot. Travis Scott is not the only problem in the music world, and neither is the style of music that he plays rap. It goes way beyond that. In fact, everyone who is honest with God is obliged to feel the pain of withdrawing from their own personal, cherished element of this evil world system. Yes, it's easy to champion leaving an activity or an event we don't like, but how serious are we when we are commanded to leave an activity or event that we love? How willing are we to obey the commandment not to be unequally yoked? Let's um, examine what that phrase means a little bit. A yoke is a wooden implement that's used to control a team of oxen. 
We don't run across yokes much in this technological age, but the early Christians would have easily understood the reference. Equally yoked oxen pull together in the same direction to advance a plow through the soil. To work effectively, both animals must be pursuing the same objective. If one animal wants to go back to the barn and one wants to plow up the field, the best outcome is a stalemate. They will not be able to accomplish anything useful. But more likely, the more powerful of the two will force the weaker one to go along with it, and that's the idea of the expression. Unequal yoking with unbelievers will at best negate the work of the Christian, but more likely induce the Christian to pursue the objectives of the unbeliever, which are often aligned with Satan's objectives. Since God does not force anyone to come to him, the unbeliever will never be compelled by God to work with the Christian. Therefore, unequal yoking is not going to work to the Christian's advantage most of the time. Yes, if you love Travis Scott music, it's a bummer that you must treat it as a filthy thing, and it's even worse when you realize that you have an obligation to God to evaluate all of your rap music and the artists in the same way. If you don't love Travis Scott music, then you may feel self-righteously indignant that anyone does and enjoy your sense of privilege in not having to give it up. But don't enjoy the moment too long because there's a little something special waiting for you in this world system. Let's draw in a broader audience into this Christian musical withdrawal exercise by expanding our genre of music and the musical venue. Every year, we have this elaborate sports extravaganza known as the Super Bowl. At these annual events, there is a halftime music show that entertains the captive stadium attendees and millions more around the world. Gone are the days of pom-pom girls and college bands marching around the field. Today, we have the world's most prestigious pop stars performing a musical extravaganza that rivals any performance in Las Vegas. It would seem that the billionaires are using the show to promote something other than football, and since they don't own the bands that perform and therefore don't profit from them, the promotion must be about something else. So to find out what that might be, let's take a look at a few of the more recent halftime events. Let's start in 2012 with the Madonna performance. Prior to the big event, Anderson Cooper interviewed Madonna about the upcoming performance, which aired on CNN, you know, the Christian News Network. It went something like this. Are, are you nervous about doing the Super Bowl? Oh my God, so much. I'm so nervous. You have no idea. I am. Really? First of all, it's the Super Bowl. I mean, the Super Bowl is kind of like the holy of holies in America, right? <laughs> so, like, here I am. I'm going to come into, the, like, the ha halfway between, like, the, the, the church, the church experience, and uh -huh. I'm going to have to deliver a sermon that's going to be, have to be very impactful, right? I have to put on the greatest show on earth, in the middle of the greatest show on earth. I have eight minutes to set it up and seven minutes to take it down and 12 minutes to put on the greatest show on earth. Okay, that's a lot of pressure. Okay. Do you have any hints of what you're going to be doing? I'll be singing. So, Madonna was promising a church experience with a sermon at the American Holy of Holies, which, remember, is just a sporting event. That was, if nothing else, a rather blasphemous statement by this Kabbalah-embracing high priestess of pop music. It's ironic that Madonna would use the term Holy of Holies, since only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies in ancient Israel, and only on the Day of Atonement, 
and only to offer a blood sacrifice with incense before the mercy seat of God. Keep that in mind as we walk through her performance. It began when Madonna rolled into the stadium on a giant golden throne dressed in a golden gown with a golden headdress adorned with horns. I know I often wear my horn sporting baseball cap when I go out to an event. Her throne was pulled by scores of Roman soldiers, they weren't real Roman soldiers, and was welcomed by scores of adoring women. Off to the side of the procession, two male-ish persons wearing ram's horns and devil's horns on their headdresses, they love their horns, pretended to blow into metal trumpets. As her band played demon-inspired music behind the fake hornblowers, flames soared into the air from a wall of flame machines. You know, when I see a band playing screeching devil music which has a wall of fire behind it, the first thing that comes to my mind is heaven, right? Sweeping back to the procession, several women in front of Madonna open and close giant feathered wings as she rises majestically from her throne. For those people with insight, the entire spectacle portrayed the Sumerian Babylonian goddess Inanna Ishtar. One famous relief has Ishtar standing wearing a floor-length gown with a headdress that resembled Madonna's crowned horn. The back of Madonna's throne chair formed a shape that was reminiscent of wings, which is probably not an accident since Ishtar is sporting phoenix wings in the relief. Probably just a coincidence. In case you're wondering, Ishtar was the goddess of love, war, sexuality, fertility, and prostitution, and is associated with the planet Venus, the bright and morning star, which is a name Satan likes to borrow for himself. The tips of the swept-back wings of the throne were supported by candy-striped posts resting on two creepy-looking sphinxes with glowing blue eyes. Sphinxes are also associated with Ishtar goddess worship. As the procession continued, Madonna stripped off her golden gown to reveal a black bodysuit, black thigh-high stiletto boots, and black and gold waistband with dangling thingies in the front. As she gyrated and twisted on her golden throne, the crowd went wild with excitement over the 50-something goddess of pop. Okay, in fairness, she looked pretty good for a 50-something pop star, which I'm sure had nothing at all to do with the adrenochrome these people are always after. Go look it up if you're wondering. As she departed her throne, she strutted out onto a stage that was filled with ram-headed dancers and illuminated with Masonic symbols. Get it? Illuminated? Masonic? Illuminati? The ones illuminated by the light bearer himself? Then, a male dancer, sporting a pair of wings, held a lira, a little harp, up to Madonna's face and danced around her in a kind of symbolic angel worship. The little angel then traipsed off to join a chorus line of Roman soldiers, dancing slaves, some weird Merlin-type person of indistinguishable gender, and, of course, a ram-horn guy. With Madonna and all the dancers crouching down, it now becomes clear that the dangly things that they are all wearing are designed to give a nod to the Masonic aprons that are designed to cover, but highlight, a particular region of the body. I should have realized that before the two-minute mark of the performance. As the event goes on, a nice phoenix sun disc appears, which fits in nicely with the pagan Egyptian theme, as well as being a beloved symbol of certain secret societies, such as the Freemasons. At the 7 minute 26 second point, rappers Nicki Minaj and M.I.A. suddenly appear off to the side of Madonna, 
with all three dressed as Marilyn Monroe's. The rappers were presented as minions with Madonna as their master or handler, another allusion to the goddess theme. This is a nod also to beta programming or mind control programming, also known as sex kitten programming for reasons that we won't go into right now. The Marilyn Monroe outfits were a giveaway about that programming. Other notable elements to the artistic work were two Egyptian-clad women with devil's horns gyrating on the stage, women dressed in red and white, symbolic of beta programming again, and a stage that turned red. Red stage, fire, sexual dancing, horned headdress dancers, goddess worship theme, beta programming. I mean, it just couldn't have been any more obvious who was being honored at this performance. But just in case you need more convincing, at the 10-minute mark, the point where Madonna is singing about life being a prayer, gobs of spooky black-and-white-robed priest types surround her, the white forming a long triangle pointing upwards. Madonna, who's now dressed all in black, is on a central platform along with a large man whom I'm, I'm told is CeeLo Green, who is also dressed all in black, and they resemble priests. As the song begins, a huge eye is projected onto the stage. Uh, just in case you missed the symbolism up to that point. CeeLo and Madonna stand on a rising stage that illuminates itself as it rises. Then it descends, releasing CeeLo off to the side. Suddenly, as Madonna concludes with the words, It feels like home, the floor opens up and swallows her down into oblivion in a swirl of stage smoke and lights. Home to the black-attired Madonna seems to be down. The subtle performance was concluded with the words, World at Peace, which is a favorite slogan of the globalists who want to establish a one-world government. You know, peace and safety. So let's move up in time now to one of the most famous halftime shows of all time. Yes, I'm talking about the 2013 Beyoncé performance in Super Bowl 57. The show focused on the duality and the splitting of personalities, or the multiplying of personalities, which is an MK Ultra and Project Monarch mind control reference. The idea of duality was embedded all through the performance, duality being the idea that all things have two components, equal and opposite, up and down, in and out, right and wrong, good and evil, black and white. This kind of thinking permeates Masonic and other secret society ideologies and is reflected in the Masonic temple decor as black and white symbology, particularly their beloved checkerboard floor patterns. These black and white checkerboards showed up repeatedly throughout this performance. For years, MKUltra and Project Monarch were just crazy conspiracy theories, but like so many other crazy conspiracy theories, Time and the relentless pursuit of information finally revealed the truth in leaked government documents, whistleblower testimonies, and victim statements. Grudgingly, a handful of politicians in government finally admitted that these were actual historical government operations, the purpose of which was to see if the human mind could be controlled by splitting a personality into multiple components. This was accomplished using various nefarious techniques, up to and including severe and repeated sexual abuse, exposure to extreme physical violence, torture, and forced drug use. Yep, all by your government. 
These programs reportedly continue in some form for the purpose of satanic ritual abuse and personality control. And this was the background to the 2013 Super Bowl halftime show performance. Just to set the hellish mood, the show started off in a flash of fire that became glowing mirror image outlines of faces that were positioned nose to nose. This was the starting visual representation of the duality theme of the entire show. At the start of the show, amidst a towering mix of fire, lights, and smoke, a sensual Sasha Fierce, uh, I mean Beyonce, stood with her hip thrust out provocatively. As the lights were raised on her figure, she strutted across the stage in a black leather outfit, which I guess you could call clothing. Like her predecessor, she too sported knee-high black leather boots with giant stiletto heels. The early part of her performance was bathed in glowing red lights that repeatedly transformed into a sun-worship symbol or modified eye shape. Her alter ego, Sasha Fierce, took control of her performance and was easily recognized by her violent, angry, and, well, fierce facial expressions and body motions. Sasha kind of dominates her body during show performances so she can do things she wouldn't normally do or even be able to do. It's kind of like an out-of-body experience. Sasha gives her the presence that makes her shows special, but she would not like her very much if they met face-to-face. Those are all her words in an interview, not mine. As the show ramped up, numerous women dancers appeared on stage dressed almost identically to Beyoncé, They were wearing a little bit more leather, maybe, which was a great way to symbolize split personality. At around the five and a half minute mark, Beyonce split into multiple replications in a clever visual effect and then transformed into a black silhouette with two white silhouettes dancing with her before transforming back into a line of lookalike Beyonce's. The imagery manipulation continued with black and white background patterns, the duality symbol, and a shattered glass mirror. That is a classic MKUltra-themed mind control symbol where the mind is shattered to blur the boundary of what's real and what's illusion. So while this performance was a bit more subtle than the in-your-face Egyptian goddess performance of Madonna, the appearance and domination of Sasha Fierce in conjunction with clear mind control and ritual abuse symbology brought a whole new demonic element to the Super Bowl stage. Then, there was that Katy Perry Super Bowl performance in 2015. Ms. Perry, who once tried to be a gospel artist but decided instead to sell her soul to the devil for pop fame, again, her words from an interview, not mine, she started the festivities in a somewhat more modest costume than Beyonce, but made sure it was decorated with flames so you would not think she was a sellout. They aren't real subtle about this, are they? She started the show riding a giant artificial lion to provide a degree of plausible deniability to the symbolism. She could always say it was the Lion King thing, but of course it really wasn't the Lion King thing. It was Ms. I Sold My Soul playing the part of the Whore of Babylon who rides the Beast of Revelation into perdition. After the first song, the stage quickly transitioned to a black and white checkerboard with all kinds of dancey chess pieces. They just can't get away from the black-and-white checkerboard Illuminati Freemason theme, especially when the show secretly honors Aleister Crowley, a kind of hero to the occultists in Hollywood, who once was called the most evil man alive. He was also a big chess fan. 
These satanic and occultic themes are present in many of the Super Bowl performances since the 1970s, with increasingly obvious references in the 2000s. So why is that? Why do the owners permit this? Maybe you think that's just that they're a little too busy with their football management duties to worry too much about the little halftime show? I don't really think that's it. These are all highly successful business people. Other than the ones who inherited their little team from daddy, the owners are mostly billionaires because billionaires are the only ones who can afford the teams when they come up for sale. Billionaires are rich for a reason, only part of which is that they like to be rich. They are rich because they know how to manage business investments. Do you really think that the most successful business people in the world would risk letting some little maverick activist performer soil their primetime product by not knowing what the halftime show is going to be about? That's not even remotely possible. Billionaires don't get to be billionaires by being stupid and clueless about what's going on around them. They get to be billionaires because they're key players in the game of running the world. They know who runs it, and they're full participants in that world, although they may do it quietly. The reason the halftime shows feature satanic themes is because Satan is getting the world ready, and his people in football are helping him to do that. It is a day that was prophesied about, the great and terrible day of the Lord, But before it gets here, Satan is going to unveil and unleash his man of the age, the one who's going to bring him worship. Satan wants to be worshipped, longs to be worshipped, and people can't worship what they don't think exists. The camouflage was useful for a while, you know, keeping him hidden from view and convincing people he doesn't exist, because it enabled him to build a world empire of vast wealth and power and technology, But the usefulness of the camouflage is coming to an end. He's getting us ready to accept the reality of him and lots of other occult entities, and he's dismantling the camouflage through entertainment. Make it fun, make it exciting, and they will come, just like they said in the field of dreams. Scare them and they won't come, but lead them with sensual women and foul-mouthed hate-spewing rappers and they will certainly come. At least the true worshippers will come. But Satan needs more than the help of Hollywood, music producers, and an accommodating football league to bring him his adoring followers. He needs a government that will make and enforce the right kind of rules, the kind of rules that will leave little room for disagreement, the kind of rules that make things happen and make them happen now, this minute, and not next month or next year. He needs obstacles to government removed so that it can operate smoothly and efficiently in making and enforcing rules. He needs the contrarians removed, and he needs a military-police alliance to help remove them and make sure they stay removed. It has to be a police force and military who follow orders unfailingly and don't hesitate to implement the government's commands. Satan doesn't want enforcers who reject order because the orders conflict with an outdated sentimental dead document like the Constitution. Dead is a transgender name. He needs a living, breathing Constitution. One that always says what he needs it to say, and he needs iron-willed, loyal military and police forces to make that happen. You know, like Hitler had, and Stalin, and Mao. He needs an obedient people, not a people who make trouble because they have too many choices. Too many choices equals bad choices because most people are too dumb to know what's really good for them, according to the globalists. Satan needs people who not only have fewer choices offered to them, 
but he needs people who want fewer choices offered to them. To speed things up, what he really needs are people who want his choices. Since many people stubbornly refuse to change on their own, he needs to have them changed so that they will reflect his own preferred image, that nice androgynous image of his angels. Yes, Satan needs things, and he's building all of them much faster than you might think. It's all coming together rather quickly. Take the military and police, for example. World history has shown that there are always plenty of men and women who just love to exercise physical control over others. And the more physical they can get with people, the better. We know all about the bad, bad Nazis of World War II. We've been raised to believe that they were some kind of super monsters who were so different from the wholesome American men we produce that they did things that American men would never do, could never do. As a result, we decided to hang a lot of them after the war. A cynical person might say that the men who were hanged were the ones that America had no use for, because we sure did like some of those deranged monsters. We liked them so much, we brought back a whole slew of them to work for our government. Take Werner von Braun, for example, the design engineer of the famous V-2 rocket that terrorized the English population. It was not so good at hitting military targets, but it sure was great at blowing up several random city blocks. Did that make Werner a terrorist? A war criminal? No! It made him a good recruit for the U.S. Army Missile Development Program, and even, ultimately, director of the Marshall Space Flight Center at NASA. Just ignore that little detail that he joined the Nazi party in 1937. He could explain that. He didn't really want to join the Nazi party, but they made him, you see. He fessed up to joining them in 1939 during the war, but he actually joined them in 1937 when Germany was at peace. What's a couple years among friends? Did I mention that in 1933 he joined the Nazi Stutzstaffel, a.k.a. the Protection Squadron, otherwise known as the SS, as an SS and Werther or, which means candidate, but he did leave the following year in 1934. He left the SS. Nevertheless, in 1940, three years after joining the Nazi party, he rejoined his old comrades in the SS with the rank of Untersturmführer, which is um, kind of lieutenant-ish. He was also promoted three times by Heinrich Himmler himself, the ghoul of the SS. The last time being in 1943, when he attained the rank of SS Sturmbahnführer, which is kind of majorish. Not too bad for a guy who swore to the Allied interrogators that he only wore the SS uniform once. But you know, we are a forgiving people, so we welcomed him into the United States with a pat on the back and a boys-will-be-boys attitude. Actually, the predecessor of the CIA smuggled him into the country as part of a secret intelligence program called Operation Paperclip. You know, one of those conspiracy theories, again, until the truth was finally pried out of the government's clasping paws. Operation Paperclip was a roaringly successful program that brought a whole boatload of Nazis over to America to work for the government on all kinds of secret projects in all kinds of secret and exotic locations. And it paid pretty well, too. I know, it's a bad look, but, you know, pragmatism often is. And Werner knew all about rockets, which the army wanted to learn about, too. And what about all those other Nazis who didn't know as much about rockets and other important technological stuff? Well, I guess it just sucked to be them. Bring out the noose! Now, don't get me wrong. 
I'm not saying that the Nazis didn't deserve the noose. I'm saying that if we're going to make a big show of hanging thugs who did things that were wrong in the eyes of God, then we should hang all of them and not differentiate based on who can engineer the best death machines for our own army or help build a moon rocket. The truth is that those SS men were not the uniquely evil products of a uniquely evil government. They were the common product of a commonly evil government. Evil, when encouraged, flourishes. And evil men, when they're accommodated, do evil things. The same goes for women, by the way, just in case you're sitting there smug as a bug thinking women should be the ones in charge. There is no shortage of evil women either. As an illustration, I give you this short audio clip from a Mark Felton production that illustrates what some women are like when their evil propensities are accommodated in positions of authority. It's from his video, SS Women, Female Concentration Camp Guards, which you can watch in full on the YouTube if you'd like. So let's listen to a little bit. According to research by British writer Sarah Helm, female SS guards generally fitted into two categories. The first were the out-and-out sadists. Their stories are well known through the many post-war trials and executions, and they were women who enjoyed the pain their power could inflict on others. The second, a much larger group, what Helm has labelled the pathetic creatures. The majority of guards who fell into this way of life almost by accident and then found they could not get out of it. Quote, they came from poor backgrounds by and large. They weren't very bright and they were desperate to get away from home to something different, writes Helm. If you were working in a munitions factory, then a job as a guard had a lot going for it. It offered better pay, nice living quarters, certainly better than they had at home, and lots of handsome SS men to go out with, unquote. And there you have it. Better pay, great living conditions, and men. Life is good. Both groups of women did have something in common, and that was the way that they very successfully dehumanized the camp inmates, reducing them to worthless, inhuman, and expendable bodies. The most common German word used was dreck, meaning filth, muck, rubbish and scum when discussing concentration camp inmates. Normal morality and decency fell by the wayside. The stories of some of the female SS who were alive until recently is fascinating. The most notorious was Hertha Botha, who was born on the 8th of January 1921 in Titorov, Mecklenburg. She worked as a shop assistant, a factory worker and a nurse before being recruited into the SS auxiliaries. She had also been a proud and enthusiastic member of the League of German Girls. In September 1942, Botha had been conscripted and was sent to Ravensbrück on a four-week training course. After completing her initial training, Botha was sent to the Stutthof subcamp near Danzig, now Gdansk in Poland, where her activities earned her the nickname the Sadist of Stutthof. The six foot three inch Botha beat prisoners with alacrity, and she was not averse to shooting people out of hand. In July 1944, Botha was transferred to Bromberg Ost subcamp, and on the 21st of January 1945, the 24-year-old accompanied a death march from central Poland to Bergen-Belsen by way of Auschwitz. Botha and the marchers arrived at Belsen between the 20th and the 26th of February. 
At Belsen, Porto was put in charge of supervising a woodcutting brigade of 60 prisoners, during which time she victimized and murdered many of the prisoners in her charge. She enjoyed taking pot shots with her pistol at women prisoners who were carrying containers of food from the kitchen to their huts and would pick out sick girls to beat with a wooden stick. No, women are not magically insulated from evil. Put women in comparable roles to men and they will be just as able and willing to commit violent evil as the men, especially when they're six foot three and tower over their victims. Even today, Satan has his people available when the time is right. Take, for example, the recent behavior of police and paramilitary units in the formerly democratic countries of Canada, Austria, Australia, and the peaceful little island nation of New Zealand. Our friends up there in the Great White North are getting very troubled with the behavior of the rising SS police who were brought in to quell a popular uprising among the truckers against a blatantly fascist policy of the government. They have noticed that the police don't look much like the police of old, let's say six months ago. These police are dressing increasingly in all black, they love their black, or in some cases, in all green that resembles a bad science fiction movie. The uniforms are unmarked, with no identifying names, badges, or insignia. The police headgear is now a black helmet with face shields, beneath which is a face covering, also black. Sometimes they have special eye protection, like something they would wear to protect themselves from directed energy weapons, for example. They wear body armor, carry shields, batons, tear gas canisters, automatic rifles with rubber bullets, and guns with real bullets. In addition to their regular vehicles, police backup equipment includes lightly armored paddy wagons, more heavily armored military-style vehicles, and their newest toy, long-distance crowd-control devices that use microwave or acoustic radiation to disperse unwanted humans. The latter devices have the unfortunate tendency to also burn people's flesh when they're used against civilians. But hey, you know, you gotta burn a few apples to make a, you know, applesauce, I guess. They are military devices, these directed energy weapons, and they were originally built and designed for military applications. But somehow, the police have attained them, along with horses that they use to trample grandmas who are peacefully protesting. Many people have reported the presence of UN aircraft parked at airports in the vicinity of the Canadian capital, which is where all this is taking place. Each day, they have the aircraft have different tail numbers, which suggests that the aircraft are moving around and ferrying people into Canada at night. Are these nameless, faceless, militaristic police actually UN troops? Based on their behavior and the way they don't interact with the protesters, that's a distinct possibility, and that would be an act of war by a government against its own people. The lesson here is that a democratic country is not automatically protected from tyranny. Tyrants are always lurking in the background because Satan is in control. Americans are not protected from tyrants just because we have a constitution. It can only help a constitution to the extent that it limits the authority of the government. Once we allow governmental authority to run unchecked, the Constitution is effectively dead. Since Satan is a liar, the enemies of the Constitution misuse language to mean the opposite of what it should mean. They say they want a living, breathing Constitution, which actually means that it's supposed to be flexibly interpreted to flow with the times. Superficially, it sounds nice, but a law cannot be flexible and still be a moral, legitimate law. 
A flexible law is a suggestion, or worse, a weapon to be used against enemies to the benefit of friends. Flexible, malleable, selectively enforceable laws are the favorite tool of all tyrants, both large and small. It gives the tyrannically-minded leaders the appearance of legitimacy while empowering them with the most illegitimate tool of oppression imaginable. But to oppress effectively, they need oppression enforcers, and that's where the police and the military come in. In America, our enforcement authorities are supposed to swear allegiance to the Constitution. I believe they all take an oath to that effect. They're not supposed to swear allegiance to individuals, or elected officials, or parties, or ideologies, or even their own chain of command. Certainly not the whimsy of their leaders. There is a problem in our oath that I identified over 40 years ago when I was young and just starting out in the military. While we were compelled to swear allegiance to the Constitution, almost like it was a sacred instrument, at no time did the chain of command make the slightest effort to explain in realistic terms what that allegiance actually meant in a practical sense. The best we got at the time was that we were not to follow illegal orders. And what we asked are illegal orders? Well, basically, we were told, we would know them when we see them. We were not to make a mistake, though, because then we would be court-martialed and potentially imprisoned, or maybe worse if it was wartime. And that was about it. That was the extent of our advice that we got on the matter. From that point on, it was, you better follow your orders, or you'll be busted so far and so hard you may never get put back together again. And so much for the Constitution. But that was pre-living and breathing Constitution days, so today, swearing allegiance to the Constitution could easily mean swearing allegiance to a person, or elected officials, or a party, or an ideology, or maybe even the military chain of command. Maybe even whimsy. I guess it just depends on how malleable a person's conscience is, which means how little conscience a person still has left. Thus, we have seen in America the breathtaking effort to purge our military of anyone who thinks that the Constitution limits individual and collective power, or who believes in free speech, or who supports the wrong party, or who questions the unlimited power of the chain of command, or who refuses to subject their body to questionable and objectively dangerous experimental potions. That's what tyrannical governments always do when they're consolidating their power. They purge. They also force police officers out of their job if they will not blindly follow the dictates of their superiors. Consolidation of power always includes a purge of the uncooperative. Good people in enforcement positions tend to flee the corruption because they don't want to participate in it. But that just leaves the people who don't really care about the corruption in the positions of enforcement. Take, for example, a young woman who serves in some capacity in the U.S. military. At least, she presents herself that way. Listen to how this representative of the modern generation of American soldiers views the Constitution that she takes an oath to protect. Understand that if active duty military actually get deployed within the United States, that weapon is not just pointed at other people, other countries. It's pointed at you. If you do not get in your house when I tell you to, you become the enemy. Martial law. You know, where your rights get curtailed. You don't have all those same freedoms that the Constitution guarantees at that point. So be careful what you wish for, and stop opining about things you don't understand. Either the entire purpose of the Constitution has clearly failed to register with this person, or she believes it has some other purpose, like requiring allegiance to a chain of command. Hitler believed in that too. That was the whole point of the SS. The SS was created to be his personal protection force, and they swore allegiance to him directly. 
not to the nation, not to the people, certainly not to some silly piece of paper in a museum somewhere. They swore allegiance to the man. And this man was the man who was willing to brutalize anyone who stood in his way more than any of the other power competitors. The most brutal men always rise to the top in any tyranny. It's a rule, and the reason's very simple. The people who are most willing to act brutally with the least hesitation will be the first to eliminate all of their competition for the job. When Saddam Hussein stood up in Parliament and declared himself to be Iraq's new ruler, a man in the Parliament chamber objected. So Saddam promptly sent one of his trusted enforcers down to the objector and had the enforcer shoot the man in the head. And that stopped any further objections, and the rest is history. Saddam Hussein went on to teach his young children the importance of leadership brutality by making them repeatedly watch things like the gradual lowering of a victim into a vat of acid. His young children had to repeatedly participate in that kind of soul-crushing indoctrination in order to get them used to the things that they would need to do in leadership position. It was the same with Kim Jong-un and his father. These tyrants are all like that, which is why Lenin and Stalin murdered far more of their own citizens when they established communism than the 15 million people who were ultimately murdered by the Nazis. Let that one sink in for a minute. All that tyrants need to be successful are compliant cops and an obedient military, which money and a bit of power can easily buy. Oh, it might be harder if the populace is unified against them, but they won't be as long as some of them get to live a somewhat normal life. Such people will happily turn on and turn in the resistors for a chance to be part of the special class of favored citizens. As long as life looks pretty normal to them, they will overlook the occasional escorting of a neighbor to the back of a black unmarked car in the middle of the night, never to be seen again. Americans have thought for a long time that we're insulated from the tyranny problem because we were protected by our traditions, institutions, and constitution. Singing God Bless America and reciting the pledge were thought to be the magic incantations that protected us. But in an era when few people ever read, much less understand the requirements of the constitution and its amendments, we're not actually protected at all. We just have an illusion of protection, thinking that the Joe Biden administration has our back. And the military. And Pfizer. The genius of the Second Amendment, which comes right after the First Amendment, is that when the First Amendment fails, it's a sure sign that the corrections of the Second Amendment will soon be needed. The founders believed that the Second Amendment would be the only effective solution to a government that abandons its primary function of securing liberty for Americans to secure power for its rulers. They believed it provides the only realistic remedy for a maverick government when free speech and religion fail to do their job, or are quelched or abolished, officially or otherwise, both of which are true today. It's the ultimate inoculation against tyranny, which the founders fully expected would rear its ugly head one day, even between our shores. Yet it's become the most reviled, maliciously slandered, and grossly misunderstood part of the Constitution. What is the Second Amendment? What does it say? And what does it mean by what it says? And how should it be viewed by Christians of today? Those are all really big questions. So to find the answers, you have to divest yourself from satanically influenced sporting events and musical recordings so that you can tune in to next week's episode of the Underground Christian Podcast to find out the sensible alternative to pop culture. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, or possibly even entertaining, please recommend it to someone you know who might benefit by it. 
give it a thumbs up or a happy face or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. This is not a commercial enterprise and I'm not a professional podcaster. I'm just one small and unlikely person doing what I can to bring a sliver of light to the deep darkness of the world. There isn't much budget for this podcast, so it's limited to what I can invest both in time and money, which is why it doesn't get posted as regularly as I would like. It is God who keeps me going, so please pray to him so that this podcast can benefit listeners spiritually. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. I have given up on BitChute for the moment, maybe later. To find Underground Christian, just look for the bright green icon when you type in Underground Christian in the search bar. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. I will respond just as soon as I can. If you wish to help with a podcast, please let me know in an email. Until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and get ready to do the work of God. But if you don't want to do the work of God, or maybe work at all, then you are a hopeless case whose only possible source of salvation is religiously listening to this podcast. (laughs) Just kidding. You will have to get a little humble with God and ask him to privately change your heart, because your heart must be realigned with God to be a true follower of Christ. But once your heart is successfully realigned, you will have the assurance of an eternal life with God who created everything and is really, really great and loving. And that is much better than being incarcerated with Satan in all that blackness and flame that his followers seem to love so dearly. Isn't it? <laughs>